Old Testament reading today comes from the prophet Jeremiah chapter 11, beginning in verse 18. Because the Lord revealed their plot to me, I knew it. For at that time he showed me what they were doing. I had been like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I did not realize that they had plotted against me, saying, Let us destroy the tree and its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name be remembered no more. But you, Lord Almighty, who judge righteously and test the heart and mind, let me see your vengeance on them. For to you I have committed my cause. The word of the Lord. From the epistle of James, chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. The word of the Lord. Will you stand for the reading of our gospel? From the gospel according to St. Mark beginning with verse 30 of chapter nine. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. The gospel of the Lord. You can be seated. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you all this morning. It's good to be back. Um, I wanna say thank you so much to everyone who stepped up last week. I um, found out on, I believe, Thursday of last week that uh, my grandfather passed away and uh, had to, uh, of course, go to uh, his funeral in Indianapolis and um, was just so thankful for everybody who, when they heard that this happened, just said, yeah, we're totally gonna step up and do this. And I wanna thank Ian for preaching and I had the opportunity to listen to his sermon and it was just so thoughtful <laughs> and so meaningful. And I just uh, was so glad. It, I told him that we were starting a series 
and that he was going to start it, um, and uh, that we were doing a series called A People. And we're looking at last week, we looked at being a confessing people. This week, we looked at being, we're looking at being a deferring people. And next week, we'll look at being a prayerful people. And so last week, I kind of gave him like the scriptures and then said, okay, you got to talk about confessing and speaking to one another and, you know, proclaiming Christ. And um, little does he know that he actually set off our series so well last week. Um, he did such a great job with that. And I'm so thankful for that. Um, and let me just say to something that I, I'm thankful for, my my grandfather lived such a great life of faith, and I'm really privileged to be part of a family. I know not everybody is, but very privileged to be part of a family that has a legacy of faith uh, passed down from generation and generation. In fact, um, my family for a long time, <laughs> the, the men in my family, their vocation was pastor and then farmer and then pastor and then farmer and then pastor and then farmer. <laughs> down. Um, my grandfather kind of broke that because he was in the military. He was a military man as a colonel in the army. And uh, it was just such a faithful man, um, such a kind and strong man. Um, he had been sick for a very, very long time. So not a lot of people had actually seen his full character and personality. Um, but I'm so thankful that he's in the arms of Jesus now. And uh, he was part of a, he was a singer. He would have loved our songs that we sang this morning. He was part of a Baptist church that was very, very old, but he was on the committee to, uh, to help bring in contemporary music as an 80-something-year-old man. <laughs> he was part of that committee because he wanted contemporary music. He was also part of a barbershop quartet. Um, it was called Three Flats and a Sharp. <laughs> our last name is Sharp, so it's, it's great. Um, so anyway, I'm, I'm thankful for the opportunity to be there and celebrate his life, and I'm thankful for the legacy of faith that he passed on to me. Um, so today, I do want to continue this series. I want to talk about what it means for us to be a deferring people. Uh, the Christian faith is nothing if it is not counterintuitive. Um, it is different than all of the other narratives and stories that we see in the world. It is constantly counterintuitive. It's the Christian life is not, the Christian faith is not an add-on to an ordinary American life. It's not just something you just stick in and you kind of add on, oh, I'm a Christian too, that's my religion. I, I go to this gym, I get my car insurance from this place and my religion is Christian. No, it's not really an add-on in that way. It's a complete reorientation of our lives. And this complete reorientation always points us first to God. God is our source. And it always points us to others. It's always outward focused, looking to other people. So Christianity is not primarily or really at all about self-fulfillment about self-help, about self-advancement. That's not our story. The deeper we are steeped in the Christian story, the more we find ourselves pointing away from ourselves and pointing to others. Why? Well, it's because our God is this way. Our God is the one who is self-giving, who is others-oriented. Our God is the one who is constantly oriented towards another. In fact, God in and of God's self is a community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity. That God in and of God's self is a community constantly loving and giving to the other in and of God's self. So therefore, we have a God who is constantly deferring within God's self, constantly loving and giving and serving the other. Christian theologians have this fancy word for it called the perichoresis, perichoresis. It's kind of like a, a dance, this perichoretic dance. This dance within the Trinity, within God's self, back and forth, giving, loving, serving one another. And that triune perichoretic life spills out into creation and in God's love. And ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ as God's self-expression. 
One rough analogy of this is, you guys will appreciate this, as musicians, many of you are musicians. Um, don't tune out if you're not a musician, though. I think you'll still get this. Um, theologian Michael Jenkins gives this analogy of when musicians are together and they're like jamming together, like especially jazz musicians, like they get together and they play and there is this incredible synergy. There's this incredible life that happens when you get musicians in a room. Some of you are nodding. Musicians in a room together and they're playing together and back and forth and back and forth, especially maybe jazz musicians. There's a basic like chord structure or a basic even song that's played, but you go back and forth and you defer to one another and you play back and forth and music flows between them and among them and it brings on new life and it moves and they respond to one another. When one musician does one thing, another one responds and another one responds and it goes back and forth and there's a joy in this and the song is completely full in and of itself, right? Completely full and wonderful. And the cool thing about music is it can be played in a closet with just like three musicians and be beautiful and full and complete, right? It can be played in that closet, but... There is something about when musicians um, take on that life, when the music, you start going, oh, that's sweet, that's wonderful, that somebody speaks up and goes, we gotta share this with somebody. We gotta go play it somewhere. Or maybe we gotta record it, right? Like there is something inherent in this that it needs to be shared. It needs to go out. Now, of course, it's full and complete in and of itself, but it seeks expression outside among the listeners. So the listeners, when they hear the music, they respond by kind of tapping their toes, right? Or by kind of moving their head back and forth. There's a response. There's a participation in that. They become participants in the music. Well, in creation and ultimately in the self-giving of God in Jesus Christ, God gives himself for us. The Father pours out his love on the Son. The son returns that love to the father. That love between them is the spirit. And as an overflow of God's love, as an overflow of that music within the Trinity that's happening and full and complete in and of itself, we are invited to participate in that, to tap our toes, (laughs) to move our head back and forth, right? Whenever we experience the self-giving love of God, it doesn't lead us to just statically receive it and just stop right there it always leads us for outward expression. It always leads us to others. We receive it with such joy that we invite others to participate. Christians are called to self-giving, deferring love. In our gospel text that we just read, Jesus is walking out this journey to the cross, this self-emptying of God for the sake of the world. And he's telling his disciples that this is happening. So he's like, okay, this is what's happening. I'm gonna die. I'm then gonna rise again. And they don't understand what's going on at all, okay? I think perhaps um, we're supposed to maybe like feel some empathy for the disciples here because it seems like they just still don't get it. Ian did a great job pointing this out last week. Um, And I wonder if you've ever been taught something in your life and you just can't seem to get it. Like you keep getting taught over and over again. There's nothing more frustrating to me than when I was in a class in school or I'm reading a book and I just don't understand it. That's kind of, I think, what we're supposed to feel for the disciples here, that they're struggling to grasp what is going on and they keep misunderstanding him over and over again. So for example, at one point he talks to them, he warns to them about the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. Leaven, that stuff that's in bread, right? And so he warns them about the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod, and he's speaking to them about this deep kind of thing. And they think that he's like passive aggressively talking to them about forgetting to bring bread, right? 
So like they keep misunderstanding over and over again. And Jesus wants them to look constantly below the surface to see something deeper than just the words. But here in this passage in kind of a reversal, Jesus is just giving them the facts. He's telling them exactly what is going to happen. He's going to be handed over to die and to rise again. And we imagine that where their confusion comes in is that the definition of a Messiah is one who would come and rescue and liberate the Jewish people, okay? So if Jesus says he's going to die under the hands of Rome, that seems antithetical to being a Messiah, right? So like, if if you're the Messiah, you're not gonna die. What are you talking about that you're going to die? The Messiah is the Messiah because he rescues God's people from Rome and being killed by Rome doesn't seem to fit that, the disciples are saying. And it says then that they're afraid to ask him. So they're confused, but they're afraid to ask what he's saying. Well, why are they confused? Well, he uses a couple phrases here that might be confusing. First of all, he's direct. So he's saying this is exactly what's going to happen. But the words he uses could have sounded kind of mysterious. So Jesus calls himself this, the son of man, says the son of man. Um, One thing that has gotten on my wonderful wife's nerves lately is when I talk to uh, Lucy, a lot of times I'll talk to her and I say, well, daddy needs to go to work. Daddy needs to go to work. And Ashley doesn't understand why I don't just say, well, I need to go to work. Like I keep saying, daddy needs to go to work. Daddy needs, and it's from when she was really little and I was trying to kind of define that for her, but it just carried on. So daddy needs to go to work. Daddy needs to go do this. Ashley goes, just say I, like use personal pronouns. Like, why do you have to call yourself daddy all the time? Okay. Well, that's kind of what Jesus is doing here. So I'm really being like Jesus. No, that's not true. No, No, yeah, good try, yeah. No, uh, but Jesus calls himself the son of man. He kind of speaks in third person here. He says, the son of man is going to suffer these things and die. Now for Jesus, that's a short way of talking about himself, of saying I, but it carries these echoes Daniel chapter seven, there's this really trippy passage where the prophet Daniel has this vision of these beasts that come out of the sea. And then it says, and one like the son of man came and defeated them. And so when Jesus says the son of man, all of his hearers are thinking back to him as the one who defeats all of the evil that comes out of the sea, okay? So there's this stuff going on. So they're wondering, all right, is he talking literally here? Is he speaking metaphorically and pointing back to chapter, Daniel chapter seven? What is going on? And then on top of all that, there's another confusing phrase. Jesus says, uh, after three days, he will rise. Well, most Jews at the time believed that one day in the future, at the end of the age, at the end of all things, all of God's people would be raised from the dead. Okay, that was the common Jewish belief. But what they didn't expect was that in the middle of the age, one person would be raised from the dead. The Jewish Messiah would be raised from the dead before everybody else, okay? So this is kind of confusing. When he says, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna rise again, they're going, okay, he's going deep into metaphor. I don't understand what he is talking about. But he's just telling them straightforwardly what's going to happen. They would have thought, what is happening with Jesus? And so no wonder they're afraid to ask him because they're going, there's so many layers here. I don't know what is going on. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I make fun of the disciples when I read the text. Why don't they get it? Why don't they understand it? But we have to ask ourselves, when we go about our lives, how attuned are our ears to God? How well are we understanding How well are we listening? How open are we to having our minds and our directions changed? 
Do we have all of our categories preset so we can't ever change our path? Or are we open to listening to the guidance of the Holy Spirit? Contrary to what we're often taught, Christians are not called to be the most certain people in the world. Sometimes I think we're taught that. I I think I was taught that as a kid, that, that if I just gained enough biblical knowledge, that if I was just really confident in my faith, then I don't ever have to have questions, that anything that comes against me, I can just fight against and I can place my feet in concrete. But I don't know that that's the Christian faith. Why? Well, Christians can never fully be concretized, can never fully be fixed because we, were, we are always a people dependent on Jesus, dependent on someone outside of ourselves. We can't be fixed because we know we always have to take our cues from him. No matter how much knowledge we get or power we get or influence that we gain, we are always called to be beautifully dependent on God and that keeps us in deep humility. That's why I think doubt can actually be such a beautiful thing in faith. Doubt is simply admitting, I don't have all the answers. I'm not complete in and of myself. I have to take my cues from elsewhere. When Christians doubt, they seek to faithfully wrestle with questions. And what happens when we faithfully wrestle with doubt is we have to listen. We have to attune our ears to God. It becomes clear in this story what the disciples are really interested in. So Jesus is telling them about what's going to happen. They're confused. And then we see where their hearts really are. So they're sitting around and they're arguing which one of them is the greatest, okay? They have turned their focus from the self-giving love of God to need for earthly status. We are reminded today that if we are following Jesus for a quick fix in our lives, for a pick-me-up, for seven steps to a better life, for our own prosperity, we're going to be completely and wonderfully and beautifully disappointed. The disciples had pieced together half of the message. So here's what they understood. They understood that if Jesus is the Messiah, we're part of the Messiah's posse, right? We're part of his team. We're part of his group. So we'll get jobs in the new administration, okay? Like that's our goal. We are going to be his right and his left hand. In fact, I wonder if they started planning out their governing strategy at this point and they're going, okay, here's how we're gonna set everything up and here's what we're going to do. But they'll soon see what it means to really be on the right and left hand of Jesus. It means to suffer as he suffers. It means to give as he gives. It means to love as he loves. Jesus illustrates their misunderstanding by picking up a little child Jesus loves to use kids as illustrations. He he does this over and over again. And kids had really no status in the ancient world. Infant mortality and childhood mortality was really high. Um, And children were not even confident that they would make it to adulthood. So at best, children were considered pre-adults who someday would have inherent value, but right now they're not very valuable, okay? Because we don't know if they're even gonna make it was the thought. So Jesus says, you know the way into my family, into my posse? (laughs) It's by welcoming the least in status, by welcoming the children. Anyone who does that is part of the royal family, is part of the family of God, he says. Why? Because that's who God is. Always the one who seeks after the least, 
the last and the lost. Always the one deferring, always the one looking, spreading his love. This has always been who God is. All right, now, whenever we talk about self-emptying, whenever we talk about giving of ourselves and living a life that empties of ourselves, I always feel this need to say, okay, now that doesn't mean being a doormat, okay? Doesn't mean just letting people walk all over you. I always feel that need to kind of give you that kind of balance to make sure people don't think Christianity means forgetting about your own needs and letting people walk all over you. But here's what I think. Being a doormat is not really self-emptying. It's not. It's what we might call self-flagellating, right? It, when you're a doormat, when, when we're weak, when we tell others to just do whatever they want and don't consider our needs, that's never really motivated out of like a security that we have in the unconditional love of God. That's never something that we do because we go, well, God loves me so much that my needs don't matter and people can just walk all over me. No, that's not how we respond when we're truly loved, right? It's usually motivated by fear. Fear of what other people will think of us. Fear sometimes of what God will think of us or a need to please God or others. The love of God will motivate us towards a radical self-emptying, but it will always come from a place of joy and strength, not from a place of insecurity and fear. Um, my dad always says it this way, talking about when Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, there's an assumption that you will love yourself, right? That, that that's matter because when, you're, when the love of the triune God is moving within your being, when that music is moving within your being, it has to go outwards. It's the overflow of that love in your heart. In fact, scripture says perfect love casts out all fear. When there's perfect love, there's no place for fear anymore because we're driven by love. Self-emptying in the way of Jesus is always motivated by perfect love. Another distinction that's important to this, that's tied with this, is the difference between conviction and condemnation. Conviction and condemnation. Condemnation, or we might say shame or guilt or bad guilt, depending on how you think about it, comes from a faulty motivation. When we are operate out of fear or we have this guilt or this shame or this condemnation, it says, man, I better do this thing or I better stop doing this thing in order to be liked by God or in order to be liked by others. We think my worth is based on my ability to just get my act right, to get things together. That is condemnation. That's fear. That's guilt. Conviction is something different, completely different. Conviction is something that comes from the Holy Spirit. It is the reminder to us to live a better way in the world. It is a reminder that loving others and living a whole life guided in the way of Jesus is better than all of the counterfeits that we choose. Okay, so condemnation is this place of fear. It says, oh, I better get my act right. I better get this together or God's not gonna love me or others aren't gonna love me. Conviction says, oh, there's a better way. There's a better way forward. There's a better way for me to live. And we have to know the difference between those two because our motivation matters. I wrestle with this as a pastor sometimes. When when people confess sin, they share something with me or, or they'll say, gosh, I really wanna attend church more often. I know I haven't done a great job with that or I wanna tithe more faithfully or man, I really wish I could volunteer. I need to volunteer in the community. Um, my first instinct, and maybe it's because of my own past, maybe it's my personality, but my first instinct is I just wanna relieve their guilt. 
okay? I think that's probably a good first instinct, but, but to remind us that God will, love, God will not love you any more if you attend church more often than you do. He already loves you more than you could ever know. God is not gonna love you more or love you less depending on your sin or what you've committed. God's love is not conditioned on that. He loves you more than you could ever know. And I also want them to know as a pastor that my love and compassion for them is not conditioned on those things, right? It's not. But lately I've been wrestling with something else that I wanna take away people's guilt or people's condemnation, but not their conviction, okay? There's a difference there. So if the Holy Spirit is leading you to make a change in your life, to seek accountability, right, from the counterfeits that you've sought, to connect more deeply with spiritual disciplines, to connect more deeply with the church, all things that I believe God calls us all to. If I just say, no, don't worry about it. Don't, don't even worry about it. Don't even think about it. Uh, you know, don't, just don't even think another thought about it. That's not helpful to that aim. We want to take away people's con- condemnation, but not their conviction. Do you see that distinction? Okay, two of you do good. That's great. Um, I think it's kind of about where, when you see a check engine light in your heart, <laughs> where that's coming from that matters. Is it coming from insecurity and fear? That's guilt. That's condemnation. Know today that you are forgiven. Do not let guilt and condemnation rule your life, okay? If you are struggling with that today and you have insecurity and fear, let that go, okay? Let that go. Don't let it rule you. Is your check engine light coming from the nudging of the Holy Spirit that you are so loved by God that out of that love, you are called to live a more full, more whole life in Christ that is oriented towards others? Listen to that, (laughs) Lean into that. That conviction is healthy and right and good. I experienced this in my own life, and this is me getting vulnerable. I think it's a little risky to do this today, but I'm going to do this because I feel like it's right. Um, I've been out of town two of the last three Sundays, and I always start feeling weird when that happens, okay? When I'm gone for a while, I start feeling disconnected. I start feeling weird. I think it's because this is kind of like my baby that we've planted, right? And so there's this sense of kind of disconnectedness. And frankly, I feel a little bit useless sometimes. I worry about the church, even though the church is always in good hands and the people who have stepped in have been absolutely amazing and I trust them completely. And like any small thing that you've kind of created or that you're part of nurturing, you you wanna care for it. You wanna see it grow. We wanna see momentum build in this community. So I feel disconnected from that at times. And honestly, sometimes I get insecure. I get fearful. That fear sometimes, like this week, led me to go, I need to call everyone and see how everyone is doing this week, right? I need to make sure everybody's doing fine and that they know I've connected with them and they know I've talked to them enough. And that's what I need to do, right? And that's what I kind of started doing. (laughs) Um, Now that, of course, checking on people in the congregation is a good thing to do, right? It's a right, good thing. And most of the time, 99% of the time, that is always out of a healthy place. That's out of a loving place. But this time when I was coming back, I felt that check that it wasn't from the healthiest place, that there was some fear in that. Wondering if, are some of you gonna lose the excitement about sacrament that you had before? (laughs) 
Um, have we not been warm and friendly enough to you? I'm thinking about all the people I haven't talked to in enough time. Have we been warm and friendly enough to you? Or um, if you've missed a few weeks, are you upset that I haven't checked on you yet? Like those kind of things go through my head. And I know to some of you, you're going, that is silly. <laughs> but these are the thoughts that go through my head on occasion. But this week I was convicted that this movement was being motivated out of fear. That all the things that, I was wanting to do are good things when motivated by love. But in this instance, it was insecurity I was motivated by. On the flip side, um, God has been stirring in my heart something else lately, a conviction towards prayer and meditation in my life more intentionally. He's shown me that the best way for me to live and by extension to serve and to love the church in this season and to see the best for this church is if I am immersed consistently in his love and given margin to get to explore and pray and study. Now, this conviction was not fear-based, wasn't out of insecurity. This was out of God pointing me to a better way to live. It was a genuine conviction in my heart. Both of these two scenarios, the one that was motivated by fear and the one that was motivated by love, both of them actually had behavior change involved in them. Both of them had outcomes that potentially could be good. You know, checking on parishioners is a good thing to do, right? Praying and all that stuff is, is definitely a good thing to do. But one was motivated by fear, insecurity, and one was motivated by love. Do you want to know what happened? Well, as I spent, I was able to put on the brakes, <laughs> the first thing. And as I spent time in prayer and in reflection, I felt my heart grow. And I felt myself in a healthier place to be able to actually call some of you <laughs> and check on some of you, right? And so I hope you can maybe see in your own life, the reason why I'm giving this example is not just cathartic for me, but I want you to be able to see in your own life, are there some things that I'm doing because they're just motivated by guilt and condemnation? Because I feel like I gotta get other people to like me or I've gotta get God to like me or if I can be a better this, better Christian, this or this or this, then that's what I'm supposed to do. And then are there things that the Holy Spirit is genuinely convicting us in? They might both try to be leading us to good behaviors, but our motivation matters. Where the check engine light comes from matters. I think this is part of what James is calling the church to in our New Testament epistle today. It is a call to good works, but it's good works that come out of what James calls true wisdom, okay? James says there are two kinds of wisdom. There is the kind that's motivated by bitter envy and selfish ambition. James says that is just, if you read our passage on the screen, that he calls it wisdom, okay? So that was in quotation marks. Um, it is earthly, unspiritual, James says, and even demonic, okay? James seems to believe that people can go along doing good things, living as a Christian, and be motivated by false things. Bitter envy and selfish ambition can rule their lives. Why? James says, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. When we don't defer to God, when we don't orient ourselves towards others as an overflow of who the triune God is, when we only look out for ourselves, the fruit of that is always only disorder and evil practice. That's what James says. He contrasts this with a different kind of wisdom, wisdom that comes from heaven. And notice these qualities that he lists to define wisdom, they're all others oriented. So he says, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, 
then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. James goes on to describe why do we fight for status with one another in our world? He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. He's saying, remember your source. Remember who you're dependent on. God is the source of your identity, your provision, and your strength. And when we forget that fact, we no longer defer to him. We start fighting with one another out of a sense of scarcity. Our fear shuts us down, he says. Another thing that some scholars think James is dealing with here is cynicism. Um, I think one thing that's in common with so many people of my age group that I talk to, especially when talking about faith and talking about the world, is a real cynicism right now. And it's easy to do that. When we look at the world, there is so much darkness and brokenness. And I think it's right right now to be concerned about the state of our world. I think that is right. Especially when it comes to things like the treatment of minority voices and populations when it comes to the civil discourse that we're having in our society or not having in our society, when it comes to the state of truth, like all of that stuff matters, it's important. There's also a lot wrong with the church right now. Whenever I find myself getting cynical about evangelicals in our world and where evangelicalism has gone and that word and what all of that kind of word means, I remember that these are the people that nurtured and formed my life and my spirituality. I was raised in evangelical traditions. These are people who taught me the way of Jesus, right? So I think there is a difference between calling out issues in our world and recognizing that things are wrong and then also rejecting something and not being willing to jump into those broken places with hope. You can call out issues using two kinds of wisdom. The cynic looks at the world and only sees what's wrong. Their criticism is justified, but they're unable to speak the truth in love. So it becomes just a perpetual grumble, right? But Christians are the ones who are called to not only look at the problems in the world, but to get their hands dirty, to step in with a hope that doesn't come from them, but comes from above. They don't just call out the brokenness in our world, but they point to what is true and good and beautiful and the places where the Holy Spirit is moving and working in that broken world. That's who we're called to be. As we close, um, our challenge today, what I wanna encourage us towards is to be a people who listen, a people who recognize the beauty of our dependence on God that we recognize that our strength and our identity and our hope come from him and not just from ourselves. This week, I wanna encourage you to listen to his voice. For you, it might mean taking some time of stillness, of um, scripture reading, of prayer, of recentering your life, of engaging with Christian community, of going to the places where the poor and the oppressed are. That we listen to the conviction of the Holy Spirit that we do two things, that we release our guilt, that condemnation that's told us that you just better do X, Y, and Z in order to be a good person or a good Christian or in order to please God or to make other people like you, that we could let that go completely and that we could listen to that conviction that leads us to a better way guided by love.
Listen to the voice of love. Remember that not only are we called to defer to God, but that will always lead us to look to others, to recognize our dependence on community and our call to give of ourselves to others. I found for me that it's hard to listen to the voice of God when I'm constantly surrounded by noise. Um, If your whole life is little more than your Twitter and Facebook feeds and Netflix and cable news, (laughs) then uh, we probably need some reorientation, right? We probably need some stillness, some quiet, um, some other sources of input in our world. We need God and we always need God. And that need is always the most beautiful thing. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we are thankful for your love. We are thankful that out of the overflow of the love within yourself, the community of God's self, that you created us in your image and that, Lord, that you stepped into our world in the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, our prayer today is that we would, first of all, know your love and be guided by your love. Help us to release fear and guilt. I pray for those that are sitting here today and they have just been racked by fear and guilt. And it feels like a wall has been shuttered between you and them. That they feel like that this, I'll just never get through this because I'll never be good enough. I'll never be right. I'll never be clean enough. Lord, I pray for the freedom today to release that fear and that guilt and that shame that you embrace each of us just as we are. And then, Lord, I pray for the courage to listen to your voice of conviction as you point us like a loving parent to a better way. As you say, this is the better way that I have for you to live and to be human in the world, that we would have the courage to listen to that voice, to lean in to that voice. For some of us, it may mean some radical change in our patterns of behavior in our lives. For all of us, it will mean seeking other people in community to help with accountability and transparency and walking arm in arm together. For many of us, it'll change even our patterns of um, prayer and of scripture reading, all those things. But Lord, I pray that we would know your love. That would be our motivating factor. And then that we would be a community that shares your love in a broken world. We trust you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.